Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature smart clothes, smart windows, but first, let's talk about confirmation bias. Peter Bowditch has spent, or maybe wasted, a lot of time in discussion with people who seem impervious to anything which contradicts or challenges their beliefs. When errors or contradictions are pointed out, there is a brief pause for breath, and then the errors are repeated as if nothing had been said. This got him thinking about the resilience of belief. So here's Peter to talk to us about confirmation bias, denialism, and Morton's demon. I was going through my record and CD collection, and two songs caught my attention. One was The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel, which has the line, A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. The second was Rod Stewart's Reason to Believe, which says, I look to find a reason to believe. These got me thinking about how we have a need to believe things and the lengths we will go to be comfortable with what we believe. I'm saying we here because I'm not immune to the problems I'm going to talk about. With a little caution, we can avoid the traps. Anyone who has ever done any research will be familiar with the problem of confirmation bias. This is hearing what you want to hear. My studies were in cognitive psychology, where it is impossible to get directly to the processes underlying observations, and so it's all about statistics and interpretation. Anybody doing research in the social sciences has to be constantly aware of the possibility of confirmation bias, of selecting results and readings that fit the hypothesis, and either ignoring or eliminating things that don't quite fit. I don't mean rejecting obvious outliers where the observations are so far from the rest that a mistake can be assumed, I mean shaving the results to suit what the experimenter expects to find. This may not even be a conscious act, because doing it consciously approaches fraud, and most people are basically honest. The classic case in the hard sciences of confirmation bias is cold fusion. Pons and Fleischmann found what they wanted to find, and then they stopped looking. In the social sciences, there were Cyril Burt's just-too-good-to-be-true statistics about separated twins, and Margaret Mead's willingness to believe whatever some young girls told her. In medicine, there was William McBride's work on Debendocks. I don't think any of these people started out to do the wrong thing, but they all did it anyway, because what they did confirmed their beliefs. I'm not talking about obvious cases of deliberate fraud, like Andrew Wakefield, or the Korean investigators into fertility here. These people knew exactly what they were doing. Confirmation bias is rife in paranormal research, largely because this research is carried out by true believers. While there have been cases of deliberate fraud, the most common problem is testing until some anomalous situation arises and then stopping, claiming evidence of psychic or paranormal powers. I was adjudged the most psychic person in the room at a sceptics function once, and I did this by correctly calling a coin toss seven times in a row. To a paranormal researcher, this could be seen as evidence of my superpowers. But as I pointed out to the group, with about 120 people in the room, you'd expect to take six or seven tosses to eliminate everyone. Confirmation bias is one thing, but the next stage is denial, where results or data which contradict beliefs are rejected. Again, this can be a totally unconscious matter, but a true denial that has to be deliberate. The driving force behind most scientific denial seems to be political or ideological. The people I most commonly come across practicing denial are Holocaust deniers, who turn into anti-Semites within seconds if pushed, climate change deniers, I refuse to call them sceptics, whose politics are often quite visible, 
medicine deniers, including AIDS and vaccine deniers, who simply reject all science that doesn't agree with them, creationists, who reject anything that conflicts with their religious beliefs, and generalised conspiracy kooks like 9-11 truthers who reject anything that comes from a government. These groupings aren't mutually exclusive, and because conspiracy theories are close to the surface in almost all of them, it's not unusual to find people have fallen into more than one category. I would almost bet money that I could start a website and attract followers by arguing that the attack on the World Trade Center was done on the direct orders of the President of the USA in order to distract the sheeple's attention from plans by the Jewish-owned banks to print money to fund plans by Big Pharma and the Illuminati to expand their mind control through microchips and vaccine and to spread AIDS in Africa so that big oil could control African resources and get everyone to pay more for petrol and electricity by telling them that oil and coal were made millions of years ago instead of 6,000 years so that they're running out. Actually, I won't place that bet because I know a couple of websites that already say things like that. I've observed the resistance of facts in many of these groups at first hand. A few years ago, I unwisely entered into a debate with some professional creationists. Yes, they were paid to do it. I was able to show that some of the very people I was debating against had had the science explained to them more than 20 years before, but were still making the same claims. It doesn't seem to matter how much research is done to the safety or efficacy of vaccines, but it's all rejected if it doesn't prove that vaccines cause autism. If you don't believe the germ theory of disease, then no science is going to convince you that antibiotics work. One strange aspect of denial is that often people will be presented with evidence that conflicts with what they already believe. But if it still agrees with their general belief system, they will accept it and consequently hold two contradictory opinions at the same time. Any 9-11 truth are worth his place in the movement knows that no planes flew into the World Trade Center, but the planes were flown by Mossad agents who also worked for the CIA. I once challenged a group of alternative medicine believers by offering them five different cures for cancer, each based on a single unique cause of cancer, and all med there is cancer, and all forms of the same. I pointed out that at most one of them could be correct, as they were mutually exclusive, and I asked them to tell me which one was the correct one. I was universally informed that all of them were correct. A beautiful example of the way this thinking works comes from alternative medicine, where I've been told that germs and viruses do not cause disease, but AIDS is being deliberately spread in Africa using vaccines contaminated with HIV. This belief is held simultaneously with the one that says there is no such disease as AIDS, and if there were, it would not be caused by the non-existent HIV, but by the use of recreational drugs, or in extreme cases, by drugs used to treat AIDS. HIV has never been proven to exist, despite Luke Montagna winning the 2008 Nobel Prize for isolating the virus. Even if it did, Robert Gallo didn't prove that it caused AIDS. In a case of total bizarrity, Montagna has been adopted as some sort of hero by Alt-Med, and his Nobel Prize, for discovering something that they say doesn't exist, is used to boost his endorsement value. Well, I never said there was any logic for the way that people think. Did I say think? I'm oh, sorry. I mentioned that I studied cognitive psychology. I often hear this ability to hold two logically contradictory opinions as simultaneously true, described as cognitive dissonance. It isn't because dissonance implies awareness of the contradiction. Cognitive dissonance is the situation where someone acts in a manner contrary to their belief is resolved by rationalisation or justification. The ability to hold two contradictory positions simultaneously and believe them both to be true can't be described by a better word than the one George Orwell invented for 1984, doublethink, which he defined in the book as the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them. It must be obvious that anyone who can happily practice doublethink is going to be somewhat resistant to conflicting information, because they can assimilate it without rejecting what they already know, provided that it disagrees with what they know to be false. I want to finish by offering a light-hearted explanation of this phenomenon of resistance to conflicting ideas. It's called Morton's Demon, 
was first described by Glenn Morton in 2002 as a means of explaining why creationists will listen carefully to what you say and then completely ignore it. But first, some background. In 1871, James Clark Maxwell suggested a thought experiment which could show how the second law of thermodynamics could be violated. Given two rooms separated by a molecule-sized door, a demon at the door could allow fast molecules to go from room A to room B and allow slow molecules to pass from B to A. This would eventually cause a temperature difference between the rooms and this difference could be exploited to do useful work. A second idea was to have the demon only allow molecules to pass in one direction, eventually leading to a difference in pressure. As the demon used no energy, this would be a form of perpetual motion machine and the second law would be proved to be flawed. Now while this argument might convince someone who didn't know how the universe works, it was soon challenged on the basis that the demon would in fact use energy to observe the molecules. This is an example of how science works. If something is proposed which defies what we know, then the first thing to look for is why it might be wrong. Glenn Morton expanded the idea of Maxwell's demon to explain the resilience of nonsensical or wrong beliefs. He was particularly concerned about young earth creationists, he had actually been one himself, but his demon applies to a much wider class of people. His demon sits at the front of the mind and filters incoming ideas, only letting in those with which the person agrees and blocking the rest. This is much more powerful than any system where the ideas are tested for compliance by the mind and then rejected. They don't even get considered in the first place. I have seen people repeat the same 40 arguments within minutes of being informed with evidence that they are wrong, and I do mean minutes. As these people appear to otherwise be functioning human beings who could even tie their own shoelaces, it seems reasonable to infer that the counter-arguments are not being perceived, let alone being evaluated and rejected. Hmm. I think I see a thesis in cognitive psychology somewhere here. I'll give the last word to a young earth creationist who was commenting on a discussion of Morton's demon by a group of Christians who were in general agreement with it and using it to comment on the unreasonableness of some young earthers. I think it illustrates the problem very well. Anyways, the whole demon thing. In my thinking, demons certainly do influence people's thought. However, I don't see why a demon would have any interest in leading someone to believe in a young earth rather than an old one. Satan and his legions have no other interest than to take God's people away from him. They hate God and they hate his people. But if a Christian believes in a young earth, in what way are they farther from Christ than a Christian who believes in an old one? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have a small difference of belief but we still share the love of Christ, then in no way has the demon accomplished the only thing he wants to do, which is to drive us away from Christ. And all I can say about that is... QED. Peter's website is at www.rapags.com, where you can see him beating his head against the brick wall separating sense from nonsense and science from non-science. Next up, Cognitive Bias by Bradley Ray. I'm biased because I knew it all along Hindsight bias, I knew it all along I'm biased because I put you in a category which you may or may not belong Representativeness bias, don't stereotype this song I'm biased because of the small detail that grows off the big picture of the thing Anchoring bias, see the forest for the trees I'm biased toward the first example that comes to mind Availability bias, to the first thing that comes to mind Oh, bias, don't let bias 
but you're guilty of distorted thinking. Cognitive bias, your mind becomes blinded. Decisions and problems, you've been forced to solve them wrongly. I'm biased because I'll only listen to what I agree with. Confirmation bias, you never mind if you are this. I'm biased because I take credit for success, but no blame for failure. Self-serving bias, my success and your failure. I'm biased when I remember things the way I would have expected them to be. Expectancy bias, false memories are shaped by these. I'm biased because I think my opinion now was my opinion then. Self-consistency bias, but you felt different way back when. Oh, bias, don't let bias in your mind. Bias, don't try this, it'll influence your thinking and memories. Don't mess with these, you're guilty of distorted thinking. Cognitive bias, man becomes blinded. Decisions and problems, you've been forced to solve them wrong. That was the Cognitive Bias Song by Bradley Ray. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Professor Jeff Smith from the School of Physics and Advanced Materials in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, spoke to me about nanophotonics. Photonics is using photons, that is, the elementary particles of light or light, or light waves, and it's the technology that exploits that. So there's an enormous range of modern technology in medicine and uh, energy and uh, vision and so on and so on that uses photonics and in increasing now the NBN is the thing they have communications. And nanostructures are basically things that are around 10 to the minus 9 metres, so they're barely bigger than atoms. Yeah, well, one nanometre is, as you say, 10 to the minus 9. The basic structures we deal with in this game are typically a few nanometres up to 100, but uh, our energy work sometimes goes well beyond that into micron scale, and you can even put nanostructures on little micron particles, which are more commonly used in, you know, but we, we use all sorts of particles. Would you be able to use this sort of nanostructures on something like clothing? You can, to some extent, control the amount of radiation a person gives off or make it more or less. Also, the, the, the infrared signature at night is another one. That's The military is very interested oh, in that yes. because they, <laughs> they say everyone gives off radiation. We all give off about 100 watts or something. Under typical outside conditions, that's the net. That's what mm. you give out, less what you absorb back. And uh, that that radiation can be detected, that the outgoing part can be detected. Uh, and, and so, you know, with infrared detectors and so on, that's how people see you in the night. But uh, you, can, you can modify that signature by appropriate coatings and other things or... Uh, 
So you're talking one, about one of the things they put th- thin metal flakes into fabric. Now you can do that, and uh, you can put nano things on those if you wanted to. One, one of the paints we developed had a thin aluminium flakes with nano structures on it, and uh, that is commercialised to some extent. Not for roofs, a bit too expensive on cars and things. But other variants on that now give us colour. That is, we can have some nice colours and solar reflection, but that's in a simpler process. So you could potentially possibly do that as well, but that's uh, on fabrics. But uh, the metal flakes are used because, in some cases, because they're um, this infrared business as right, well as the so colour. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you could be invisible to infrared detectors? Well, not totally, but you... Less. It's not like cloaking, but you, you would have a much weaker signature. So then, Harder um, to find. Tell me about these smart windows. There are two categories of advanced windows for for keeping buildings energy efficient. Win- windows are traditionally one of the great major weak links in a building, thermally. But a window has a, a very important function. Is that the first thing that most people want, want to view, it lets in daylight, and it, uh, but it also lets in and out a lot of heat if you're not careful. And in warm places where people want high-rise buildings, especially with lots of glass, uh, that can be a major problem. In the Middle East, it's a dramatic problem. <laughs> and there's a fourth issue, which is what we call glare. That is, the sunlight gets too bright, so people start pulling blinds. Now, so to optimise all that, um, the performance of the internals of the building, we look at various ways of coating the glass. Now, glass is produced in hundreds of millions of square metres a year and uh, many hundreds in fact and all these uh, windows you know we, we want to tailor their properties so that whether we're in a cold place or a hot place we can have all the things we want which is to see out of them let some daylight in not too much glare and not too much well the right amount of heat more or less depending on where we are on the planet so and the same arguments apply to skylights, which we do a lot of work on at UTS, because skylights sit on the roof and they get much more sun on them. You also get a lot of the light coming in a skylight. As you don't need anything like as much area as, uh, as a window. And so all these, all these issues you put together and you say, how can we structure the optical properties of the glazing to, to get the right, just the right response? And this is where nano is, it's, it's, comes in. There are various tricks you can do in nanostructures, including very thin films that enable you to get just the right uh, amount of heat and light going through. And so, uh, and, and you can control the heat. again. You you control the heat, the light. So you can, might just let you know certain part of the visible, the eyes through, just but not enough to be too bright. Or you might uh, pins wherever it is. Or you might you what. It depends where you are on the planet whether you let the 50% of solar energy which you don't see through or you or you do. And in Australia, we want to block it. So we, we can do that with, uh, with either nanoparticles or very interesting little layers of thin films, uh, usually involving silver layers somewhere and other things. A very thin silver layer, about 12 nanometers. And uh, then... Uh, the what the silver does is what gives you what's called a low emittance. That is, it the other parts of the coating on the window uh, 
don't do anything to the, to the infrared, that, that comes back to the thermal. So it's a bit like our paint, but this time we're allowing the, instead of reflecting it, we're allowing the light to go back and forward in the solar part. But in the thermal part, we're reflecting it, which is the opposite of what we did before uh, with our paints. And so that, what that does, it, it keeps the heat, stops the heat from flowing out of the building uh, or keeps the heat outside. Um, and so your window, you know, can just have just, just nice and you save a lot of energy from your air conditioning, uh, again, from the windows. And uh, there are other tricks you can do, external shading. Uh, the building codes we worked on, I mean, you, you know, you, you have less glass on the east and the west than you have on the north and the south. There's all sorts of things like that you can do as well, apart from fancy nanostructures. But the, on big buildings in particular, um, they're, they're very nice. And some of these glazings are produced in, now these special glazings, let alone ordinary ones, uh, volumes of maybe 50, 60, 70 million square metres a year. Goodness. And they're growing, growing rapidly. Well, that's amazing. So we'll be able to keep cool and be able to control what we do. Yes, well, that's... You said, oh, now, well, the control is another interesting point. Where you talked about smart. Now, traditionally, the word smart means you can actually vary the properties. And there, there are some nanostructures involved in that and some just uh, thin layers but basically what you can do you can switch it switch the properties of certain what we call thin films very thin layers of certain materials some of which are nanostructured by either ultraviolet light which is like uh, photochromic lenses only in windows those lenses people wear on their multi-vision things that go dark out in the sun they're they're too expensive for a window so there are other techniques called thermochromics, uh, sorry, called photochromics, but uh, it's still not widely used in windows because it's too expensive. Uh, we have um, electrochromics, which we switch with a small voltage. A bit, they're a bit like batteries. Um, and we have thermochromics, which they'll change if they get too hot. And uh, there is also what's called a gasochromics. You, you have to leak hydrogen in, and that will change it. But... Uh, and, and there's actually a building in Germany was tried with that <laughs> and it worked but it, the, producing the hydrogen was the issue and you don't need a lot but uh, it's, it's a bit of extra infrastructure you don't really want so uh, electrochromics look like the ones that will come to the party on that there's a few companies out there now starting to produce them for specialist applications in aeroplanes and other things motorcycle visors <laughs> Mm. Um, so you can switch the properties so you, if it's too bright or too sunny you can block the radiation or you can open up in the winter time or later in the day or whatever so uh, these dynamic windows are quite, quite uh, useful in principle uh, albeit just a bit expensive but uh, they're not too bad um, the, in principle one can do that with paints as well as I mentioned earlier right. but that work is not very advanced yet it hasn't nobody's focused on it we could do something we wanted to we've got other priorities at the yes. moment yes excellent well jeff smith i'll have to wrap it up there yeah thank you very much you're welcome man that was professor jeff smith talking about nanophotonics you can find out more about the science faculty at science.uts.edu.au i see molecules i see you i see the way that matter scatters out and
and light with eyes so tight and swirling little pixels. It's a funny seeming fuzzy feeling to think about all I'm seeing, all that is birds and fish, plants and apes and annelids, traffic, smoke and atmosphere. It's a one-way ticket out of here. It's a science you can trust. It's a molecule and it's here with us. All from us, this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Peter Bowditch. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>